0: Too important, not important.
1: My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy.
0: And this is Science for People Who Give a Shit.
1: Ooh, I like that. Mm -hmm. We give you the tools that you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context, Mm -hmm. straight from the smartest people on Earth and the action steps you can take to support them.
0: That's right. And our esteemed guests, uh, who for some reason keep coming back, Mm. are scientists, doctors, nurses... Journalists authors, engineers, uh, farmers, investors, activists, educators, um, nonprofit directors, astronauts, even a reverend
1: astronauts and a reverend. Wow mm-hmm. uh, By the way, this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You mm-hmm. can also join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com.
0: That's right. Uh, Brian, this week, boy, I was really excited to get into this one and then it was a thousand times better than I could have even hoped. So good. Uh Brian, this week we're asking, it's very specific. Why do so many more black people die after heart transplants than everybody else?
1: I don't know. Thankfully.
0: Well, I mean you do know now couple, because well, we I already think, recorded yeah.
1: it, but but you I get the point, yeah. Thankfully, we have two wonderful people on the podcast today that will answer that question. Mm -hmm. Our guests today are Dr. Hasina Moradia and Dr. Errol Bush. They wrote the paper. They're eager to talk about it. And we honestly learned so much.
0: So much. uh, So inspired once again. Uh, Folks, you can find out the answer to our big question and all of the ways that you can help out up next. You ready? Let's listen. Okay. Our guests today are Dr. Hasina Moradia and Dr. Errol Bush, and together we're asking why it's so dangerous for Black people to have their hearts replaced. Uh, Dr. Moradia and Dr. Bush, welcome. Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you. Nice to meet you. Absolutely. Nice to cyber meet you over the internet. Also, this is going to be very, very great. Um, <laughs> if we can uh, get started by uh, maybe each of you just giving us a quick, um, a quick who you are and what you do, um, uh, Dr. Moradia.
2: Yes, I'm currently in residency. I'm in my first year. Just finished medical school at Hopkins back in May, um, right before, right during the pandemic. Um, Missed. I'm in internal medicine, so I work in the inpatient wards as well as do a little bit of outpatient time. And in my free time on on the weekends that I do have, I work on research. And the project we'll talk about today was one of the projects I started when I was a first year med student. You have free time. <laughs> I ask myself that all the time. It's, it's very tough, <laughs> well, but it's
1: occasionally.
0: Interesting. I, I was going to say, wow. Uh, and Dr. Bush, what's what's your story for the people?
3: Uh, yeah, so um, I'm Errol Bush, and I've been at Hopkins for a little over five years now. I'm the surgical director of um, lung transplantation and advanced lung disease. Um, and um, I finished my training in 2013 at University of California, San Francisco. was on faculty for a while before being recruited to come to Hopkins to lead the program here. And my interest has really been in lung transplantation outcomes and, and uh, trying to sort out some of the disparities that um, we see in transplantation care. Um, and that's one of the projects we'll talk about today.
0: Awesome. So so you, what you're saying is, is lung transplant wasn't enough for you? You
3: had to, you had to branch out? <laughs> that's correct. In my spare gotcha. time.
0: Okay, uh, once again, it's so weird how we keep talking to people that are just like Brian. Um, just exactly same, like me. Yes, same yes. same CV, same aspirations. <laughs> oh That's <my>. great. <laughs>
1: um, thanks for that, Quinn. Uh, thank you, doctors, very much. And then just a quick reminder uh, to everybody and and for you two. Uh, our goal on the show is to provide some quick context uh, for our question or our topic uh, for the day, and then we'll dig into action oriented questions and what everyone out there listening can can do about what's going on. That sound good? Sounds great.
0: Awesome. Um, so. Dr. Moradia, Dr. Bush, uh, we do like to start with one important question, uh, something to set the tone a little bit. And remember, you're here for a reason. Uh, instead of saying, tell us your life story, if you could each answer, uh, why are you vital to the survival of the species?
2: It's <laughs> a <laughs> <Bam. laughs> very deep question to start off with. So you it you it, it
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> Setting the tone here. <laughs>
0: One
2: day we're finally...
1: Yeah, exactly. One day we're actually
0: going to do a compilation of everybody's answers. Some of them are amazing, but they all start with laughing. So,
2: <laughs> Well, I'm glad I'm I'm with the majority on that. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll frame this as I think the work that we do is definitely very vital for the betterment of our species, for um, improving the planet as we know it. I think... As physicians or as researchers or as both of us physician researchers, I think we're doing science, in particular epidemiology, to better understand these massive disparities that have been going on for years and years, if not decades, in our health system and advocate using our science for justice and more health healthcare equality. And I think that for me, what's gratifying is being able to do that at the microscopic level with patients individually and then also being able to have more far-reaching outcomes with doing things on a larger scale with these large data sets that we've been
3: working Great, with. yeah. Now I have to follow awesome. Hasina. See, um, not so hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you Good know, luck. I, I went into medicine because I wanted to help people, which is a, Pretty much what many people say when they're interviewing for medicine and uh, going into this field. Uh, but even at a young age, my parents, who were like very religious, my father was a pastor, just really instilled in me to give back to the community. And I didn't come from a family that had um, a wide variety of means by any chance. Um, and so it was really Give back with what you have. So, whether that's sort of giving someone a hug or once you have resources, you can contribute. Um, So, I've obviously developed a a great technical skill and then I can offer someone lung transplantation, but I think it's really my duty to figure out what else I can do outside of that. And so, um, trying to make people um, be able to um, get better health care, to have a better life, um, if I'm able to. Participate in those things, then I feel like I've um, returned my duty and uh, and that I'm a happier person.
0: Yeah, again, it seems like you're just not doing enough. Um, I know. So
3: need 26 hours in the day. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Oh gosh, I hear you. Not sound terrible. I hear you. Well, thank (laughs) you. Yes, that's exactly me. Thank you, Brian. Coincide with you. uh, I always say my my. You know, we 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 joke. uh, We're very proud of what we do. We joke, but you know, I always say. when, when my children grow up and ask, you know, when, when climate change hit and public health and all oh, the antibiotics fail, what are they going to say? I'll say, I had a podcast. Um, so, pretty excited. Um, awesome. So, I'm going to just do the world's <laughs> quickest little context for everybody out there, a little... Uh, Lowest common denominator, so that we're all on the same page before we get into this thing. Sometimes this is uh, more philosophical. Sometimes it's incredibly nerdy. Uh, today is kind of uh, just a, a quick uh, bit of both of that. Um, we 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 recognize that Brian and I are. Uh, we try to feel like we have done a better job, at least over the past uh, year and a half, of of transparently recognizing and and leading with the fact that we are. Uh, two white men in America today who are who are very privileged on a number of fronts, and that that's becoming more clear by by the day. So before we get into outcomes, which is a bit of you know what your research was focused on or, or output, uh, the results of of what happened, I want to talk about uh, inputs and and how we get to a place like this, how we got here, um, but not just what happened in the hospital to make these results so skewed, um, and it, because these things can be. Uh, complex and and I try and uh, to to fully understand the machinery uh, for so many of these things. Again, whether it's something like climate change or clean energy trans- transmission, or battery storage, or uh, something like this, it, it means working hard to dial things down to first principles, um, which I, I'm really trying to study and get better at. Um, so all the fundamental building blocks, the the immovable pieces of a machine uh, of a problem, um, and and we'll get into those, but. Again, just to say things out loud, systemic racism is a choice, and it has been a choice for 400 years. And those choices, made primarily by people who look like Brian and I, um, have purposefully deprived Black people, uh, among many others, but predominantly Black and Indigenous Indigenous people historically, uh, of the ability to live healthy lifestyles. And the tenets of a healthy lifestyle include clean, available and affordable water. It's got to be all three. Clean, available, and affordable food, clean air, Uh, affordable housing, an equitable education, bedrooms and school rooms that aren't overheated, Um, and healthcare and insurance in case your health fails, and jobs that pay a living wage. And and those are the table stakes for, for the 21st century. And if you don't have affordable access, for example, to to really any of the above, any, any combination of above, your health is going to suffer. And, and when your health suffers, if you have chronic illnesses, you may eventually end up in the hospital. And sometimes that means, uh, depending on your conditions or your combination of them, how long you've been suffering um, or something you might have inherited, it, me- it might mean having something uh, replaced, an organ replaced. And sometimes uh, that means your heart. And Unfortunately, the danger doesn't end once your heart is replaced. It's not the cure-all, as we've discovered through through your work. So today, I want to focus on why it's so dangerous for Black people to have their hearts replaced. Um, so, Dr. Bush, you uh, alluded to, I know you work primarily in, in the lungs, but um, if you guys could, again, just to provide a little more context for folks, um, can you briefly provide... Uh, a little uh, context for our listeners about what exactly goes into a an organ transplant, in this case, specifically heart transplant. So a little bit about um, how you're selected or you qualify for one, uh, pre-op requirements, what happens during the surgery, and what's required afterwards, because I think this will really help paint a picture for everybody when we start to talk about all the other things that go into it.
3: Yeah, thanks, Quinn. Um, I I like. I think you hit the nail on the head here. So, organ transplantation is a very complex operation. It involves a very prolonged and um, Time course in terms of health care, as well as the resources that are needed in order to um, help take care of the person. But what you've also mentioned is that um, even getting into the health system could be a barrier for some people. And so I think the first first issue is that we have to understand what these barriers are to getting health access. And as you mentioned, um, that um, Blacks May have a higher predisposition to certain ailments, in particular with heart transplant. We know um, blacks have higher incidence of um, heart, of, sorry, of, um, of of hypertension, high blood pressure, or uh, diabetes. And those diseases, when they manifest, they're manifesting a lot earlier in African Americans, and it makes them have much severe heart disease, and um, and that may cause their their hearts to fail at a at a younger age um, compared to the 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 majority population. When that happens, the the uh, the person then needs to seek medical care, and um, there may be barriers um, in seeking. Uh, medical care, even if it's their primary care physician, someone needs to be able to leave their job in order to go to that, uh, to seek that medical attention. That primary care person has to have an interest, even though it's their duty to take care of these patients, they have to not have a bias against that person and their social situation in order to help take care of them. And then when they realize that they have such a severe Problem that their heart is failing, they then need to be referred to a more specific um, specialist, like a cardiologist or a heart failure um, cardiologist that can try to optimize and save their heart before it gets so severe that it really needs a heart transplant. Mm. Once it's decided that they need a heart transplant, then it's another transplant system that they need to get through. So they they have to have someone who respects them and cares for them enough to refer them on to transplant. That can be a potential barrier to getting people in the door on time. But then once they're in the transplant system, then it's really a multidisciplinary system. And so they're the surgeons, they're the heart physicians, they're um, nutritionists, social work, physical therapy, a so, uh, uh, Wide host of different um, professionals that will see that person and evaluate them, and then we have to hope that everyone is non-biased, so they they don't have um, what we call implicit bias. That even though they think they don't have a bias, from what they've been trained by seeing in the media. They have these preconceived notions that um, Black people may not do as well with the heart transplant. And so so they may not get referred or they may be considered not a candidate um, because of these uh, preconceived biases. Mm. Uh, But we do hope that this multidisciplinary team, which actually has a a um, sort of a checks and balance system where we decide early on, well, these are our inclusion criteria and meaning that if you meet these criteria, then you would qualify for a heart transplant as long as you don't have exclusion criteria, which are criteria that we're going to say, absolutely, we're not going to offer you a transplant. And so even though we have these sort of check boxes that we can check and make sure um, that you're a candidate or not, there are some other things that we've seen in the literature that can—that's um, not necessarily a part of that system. Such so th- something as simple as having children. So, if you're um, an African American woman having children, um, it was, can be considered a, um, a detriment to your candidacy versus a white woman with children. That's considered an asset. Well, those boxes aren't on our list of inclusion/exclusion. That goes back to what I mentioned about implicit bias, mm. uh, because that will sort of in the back of one's minds will influence their decision to give someone the chance to uh, to receive a heart transplant. And then you have the surgery itself. The surgery is very complex. Um, basically, heart transplant, you take out the old heart with the, uh, the, with the uh, assistance of the heart-lung bypass machine, and then you um, replace that old heart with the new heart. And heart transplant actually has really good outcomes. There are about 3,500 heart transplants a year. Last year, there were actually 3,600 and a pretty good survival where most people that undergo a heart transplant will should be expected to live at least 12 years after their heart transplant those outcomes aren't the same with the, or aren't as nearly as good with lung transplant but for heart transplant you would expect people to have a good outcome but yet what our study shows is that and what other studies have shown blacks don't have a um, don't have don't enjoy the same um luxury of good outcomes after a heart transplant and what we've identified first here is that in the first year African Americans are more likely um, to not survive to more likely have these problems and so we really need to focus on what can we do during that first year that may be able to help rescue um, some people that would die under our current system and and that's really the the problem here there we don't know what these um, what these issues are or what the um, resources are needed in order to help rescue these people but our job here is really to figure it out so that we can change um, for the better um, Well, th- in one sentence or less.
0: Th- 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 no, that's pretty, one sentence or less. Perfect. I can't imagine. I, I, uh, one of my favorite games is uh, when we have something really, we had on a, a guy, uh, you know, a year or so ago who figured out how to basically pull drinking water out of thin air. And one of my favorite questions for Brian is like, where would you start that project? like how like what what would be your first step? So I feel like uh, <laughs> open heart surgery is is along those lines. Um so you mentioned again just so we, people have the full context before we get into exactly uh, how black folks are 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 like you said don't enjoy the same outcomes because of a variety of factors. What is involved again briefly in in that first year? Uh, What would typically be involved for the, I know this is ridiculous, but the average heart transplant uh, patient uh, after they leave the hospital?
3: Yeah, you know that's a great question, and um, I basically think of transplant, whether it's heart transplant or any of the other organs, of two main sets of risk factors. And the first risk factor is the surgery itself, and um, something as um, challenging as a heart transplant, there can be a lot of complications related to the surgery. Um, There. but if you're able to get out of the hospital, then you're, you're subject to another set of um, potential complications. And really, these complications are either infection or rejection. And because we have to try to prevent your body from rejecting the organ transplant, uh, we have to give you immunosuppressive agents. And these drugs uh, are very rough on the body. They can affect other organs like your kidneys, uh, but they also make you more prone to infection. And so it's a fine balance between trying to prevent your organ from rejecting and trying to prevent you from having an infection, and so after sort of that first uh, two, three months after surgery, you're really trying to fight against uh, infection or losing your losing your graft through rejection, and and that's really where where a care would need to focus, I think, on how we tailor our immunosuppressant agents as well as our follow up care. Uh, there, there are lots of follow-up appointments um, right after, right after a discharge, and the further out you get from transplant, the less um, frequently you need to be seen by your healthcare physician. Uh, but early on, we we are really making medication adjustments and trying to again prevent rejection, and and that again, I think is where we can really focus our efforts.
0: Okay, this that's all super helpful, uh, Brian. Do you have any other questions? And about the actual sort of logistics of the thing before we continue I can't believe that
1: this is somebody's job to do this this sounds so stressful <laughs> I'm over here sweating just <laughs> listening to you. but in a great way it's, it's very exciting to learn I'm a little I'm a little bit interested in just just out of curiosity you mentioned the uh, I think you said last year 3600 uh, heart transplants do you have any you were saying that most of them were, were successful what is a what does that mean I guess well in like numbers wise as well how many people lasted those extra 12 years or 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 will
3: yeah so um so first year survival is like 91 92 percent of people after a heart transplant will make it to one year so that's that's pretty good um and um for um the 10 year or sorry the 12 year um survival when i said most people so about 50 percent of people will make it to 12 years which means a lot of people, almost 50% more, will last longer than those uh, 10 to 12 years. And so that is really some, a, a phenomenon um, that is enjoyed by many of the organs. Uh, um, heart liver uh, kidney kidney we expect you at least 20 years of survival after mm-hmm. after an organ transplant but and i don't want to make this about lungs but obviously it's also my specialty um, but whereas when we see with <laughs> lung transplant we would only expect people to get to six years after a lung transplant mm-hmm. so there are different reasons that affect different organs of why and how survival um, does so well or or poorly in the case of lung transplantation mm-hmm. and again and that's what I think our, our resources and research needs to focus on, how we can do this better. One of the things, uh, Brian, you mentioned, um, it, it seems very stressful. And so we try to make it easier and consistent amongst our teams to, um, to have a protocol for what we're going to do immediately after transplant. Or if someone starts rejecting another protocol for what medication you should, uh, we, we're going to start as a team. And that's great to have a protocol and try to standardize it. But what's different and why, where I think there could be issues with African-Americans and other ethnicity is that we usually shoot for a particular medication having a drug level that is of a, um, of a target level. And we have that same target level every one of our patients. So it's not changed based on your ethnicity. We're trying to make everyone, put everyone into the same box. Yet we know that the way that different ethnic um, enzymes function, so um, your your race would be associated with how quickly or how slowly you're going to digest that particular drug. Hmm. And so if we know that Different ethnicities digest the medications differently. Why is it that we give everyone exactly the same drug level? And maybe that's what's contributing to why we see differences in outcomes. Maybe uh, African-Americans are more immunosuppressed. Um, with the same drug level, and so we need to yeah. decrease that that amount of immunosuppression or vice versa. but we we really just don't know and and that's where we're really just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Sure. But as you've alluded to and and have highlighted here, we know that there's a problem, and now what are we going to do to fix it the The
0: last piece of context that i would I would love is i again, you've alluded to specifically how um, this is a quite the interdisciplinary affair from pre to 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 op to to afterwards um i don't know if there's an available number on this um but i imagine that these resources are not uh, the resources to do this uh, a heart transplant are not available uh, everywhere um do you have any sort of concept on on how available uh, heart transplants are nationwide i guess if there's x number of hospitals what percentage or something like
3: that that's a great question. I don't know the specific numbers. I, I do know organ transplantation is performed in very specialized centers. Heart transplantation is definitely um, not performed in every hospital. It's usually kind of more in uh, in major cities at big academic institutions, though it doesn't have to be at an academic institution. But I think what you're getting at is that those resources then become more limited. That sure. can be a disparity on its own. So, someone who lives in a more rural area and they have heart failure, how do they get to sort of the big city where this big heart failure center can be? And heart transplantation isn't the only uh, solution to. Um, heart failure. There's a lot of medications that um, that can be um, <clears throat> attempted um, for in the therapeutic way uh, first, and then some other devices that may bridge um, to either heart transplantation or even recovery. Um, but you do have to have access to um, to that center in order to um, in order to receive those or even be considered for those therapies.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, again, I think about, uh, like you said, the disparities and how they just add up the further you go down the funnel. And, and yeah, I, Im- I imagine discovering if you, if you live in a more rural area, um, this is another hurdle you'd have to get over. At the same time, I remember uh, we talked about somewhere, um, I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but um, that uh, it was pre COVID. I, I, be- I believe the research was from pre COVID that in Los Angeles, folks going through the public health system waited something like 80 plus days to see a specialist. Um, and that there were a a high number of, of deaths because of that. Um, and just thinking that, you know, even if you basically, even if you do live in a place with a number of large hospitals like Los Angeles with Cedars and UCLA, et cetera, um, that doesn't guarantee anything really. Um, so just trying to think about that sort of pyramid of disparities, like you were saying.
1: Everything's going great in Los Angeles, guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Dr. Moradia, I want to dig further <laughs> into uh, who is is being affected here. You you mentioned, you know, young people being being part of your research, and I think it's easy to think, you know, uh, oh, heart disease probably a decent percentage of older folks, but they're not actually the ones having the issues here, right? At least as as documented in, in your paper. So, what what have you figured out? Uh, what's what's going on with young Black people? And, and heart transplants, and and why? Why is, why is it happening?
2: Yeah, I think the results were also very surprising to us as well. I think surgical complications or complications from procedures tend to affect older recipients more. So it was very surprising to us that it was the young recipients and that in decades of looking at disparities research, which was known in cardiac transplant outcomes, that we didn't really know what subgroup it was. It was kind of just a uh, Overall disparity that was established, and we didn't know whether there were subgroups um, within within black recipients who had who were driving the uh, disparity, which we found was the case with young recipients. There wasn't. If we look at the age is sixty one to eighty, there wasn't a significant difference in outcomes. And over time, the disparities have actually narrowed in the older age categories, but persisted in the in the younger age category. So I think some of the motivation, we ultimately don't know why. I think that will be the next step is why-, why are these young recipients at higher risk? But I think some of the things that were motivating us in looking at disparities by age was potentially young recipients, as Dr. Bush mentioned, have significantly fewer resources. I think that being in this age group um, in general, I think there are adherence issues. When you're young, you may not fully understand, feel invincible, with, with your health when you're not feeling poorly and it's hard to remember to take your medications, I will be the first to admit that I'm, I'm not perfect with remembering either. And I don't have very many, I don't have complicated medical history um, compared to heart transplant recipients. So I think that's a big issue that needs to be addressed. Um, I think that as technology changes and like this 18 to 30 age group are essentially millennials. And I think being able to improve adherence for them whether it's through um, technology like reminders or apps that can encourage them to take medications on time or to seek out care and to educate them better is definitely an important area to explore more. Uh, Socio and economic disparities, we looked at that as well in the study and insurance differences between Black recipients and uh, non-Black recipients as well. And there's a lot more private insurance in the non-Black recipient group. And I think insurance difference, it's hard to capture like what's fully covered, but I think having, let, having poor insurance coverage is definitely a driving factor, could be a driving factor as well. But the surprising thing was that even if we controlled for these socioeconomic differences, differences in college education, the disparity still persisted. It didn't budge. And this has been seen in prior research too. I think it's hard to fully capture like some of the things that you mentioned, Quinn, with like having access to clean, affordable water and all of these other things aren't fully captured in some of these variables, which makes it hard. But a lot of studies um, and one in particular that I was reading about was looking at maternal morbidity uh, after pregnancy for for black women compared to non-black women. Well, that was
0: college- uh, I mean, th- sorry oh. to interrupt. I, I remember oh, reading no. those uh, two um- Wonderfully transparent uh, and brutal interviews uh, with both Beyonce and Serena Williams Mm -hmm. about their experiences.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, just as um, a context to to some of that, college-educated Black woman had twice the risk of dying after... um, Wow after delivery compared to white women with less than a high school education, which is really like remarkable to think about that even like educational attainment and income don't necessarily eliminate these healthcare disparities. So there's something much larger with the systemic racism in our healthcare system to address.
0: So that's interesting. And I wonder if we can think about that for, for just a minute and and I guess digging into that, but also talking about both of your roles in this and, and, um, I guess talking about how, you, you know, just the, the Black experience in general with with medicine now, which, you know, we can't I- ignore. I mean, you can talk in isolation pre-COVID or post-COVID or whatever it might be, but we also have to include it because as, um, I'm not sure if you guys uh, read Ed Yong at The Atlantic, who's who's just a wonderful science writer who kind of came out of uh, sabbatical to do a lot of writing over the past year and wrote this wonderful sentence I keep coming back to about how, how, how COVID was the you know the the flood that exposed all the existing cracks in our systems and um you know the 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 factors here are, are really manifold you know you've got only 5% of doctors are black and and like you just mentioned um some of these maternal mortality rates are stunning and then you have um the the more um the, the more the spotlight coverage of of experiences like uh, Serena Williams and Beyonce, I mean, mm-hmm. these women are incredibly successful and and very wealthy black women and it it, it didn't matter for them. Uh, Serena in particular yeah, yeah. talked a lot about how the doctor just didn't listen to her reports of pain. Um, and like you said, I, I remember seeing that a CDC stat, something like three to four times likely to be at risk of pregnancy related deaths as white women on average. Um, there's so much research into black patients' pain being ignored, less likely to receive pain medication. And on the other side, you know, of, of course, there's the, the black community has a very brutal history with the American medical profession. Um, I mean, the last pandemic was eight, 1918. Black people couldn't even go to white hospitals. You, we have Tuskegee, which went on for decades, uh, AIDS and everything in between. So I'm curious, d- during a time of this pandemic, which is still ongoing, uh, even if it's getting a little better, and we've seen black and and, and brown populations more likely to both get the virus uh, because of living and working conditions and a lot of the things we've talked about. Uh, They're more likely to be hospitalized, they're more likely to die. I'm curious if you guys, how you guys feel about uh, both sides, about uh, the pressure that black physicians, which are so few, and nurses are under and have been under. uh, And on the other hand, um, and how that applies to things like the pre-op and post-op experiences with uh, with uh, something like a heart transplant, and on the other hand, um, w- what else we can do to to help uh, the black population trust medicine? And for example, the vaccine.
3: Yeah, Quinn, you um, you've uh, highlighted a lot of issues there, and um, I <laughs> no, it's sorry, it's that great. was a lot,
0: but it's just I, I'm always trying to yeah, think about um, the layers to all. I of guess
3: this. Um, my first, uh, or I guess my response would be. Um, so obviously uh, as a black male myself and, um, and being in a, um, a big academic institution, um, we often um, talk about a, uh, a phenomenon called the black tax. And it's, as you progress throughout your academic career, um, there are fewer and fewer people that look like you. And in order for you to make it, you have mm-hmm. to make it meaning, um, we we oftentimes feel that we have to work twice as hard as the majority um, that are in our same position, even to just be recognized for the for the same jobs that we did that they would have done, um, but we don't get the credit. And so sure. on that level, just even to progress in your career, you have to work really hard. the The tax part of it of black tax is that because there are so few black people, the higher you go. You also every time you need a, a more diverse committee or a diverse sort of um, group in order to solve some issue, if you're the only black person, you're always the one that's chosen. And so by doing that, you're, you're also having, you're putting more work on that person in order to participate in those committees. And obviously, we, we want to do it, but we also have our, our career and other duties that have been um, given to us and so it just really becomes very taxing even um, even that portion of just how you get through your day-to-day in academia and then the other question you asked about so how can we help the african-american community community and i mentioned how i went into medicine i i really want to help people i want to give back to the whole community but especially the african-american community and in order to do that, I have to have the time to be able to sort of be engaged with the community and tell them about my experience. And certainly we come up with these opportunities where we might invite like high school students and college students to come into the hospital and to, and to uh, see what it's like. But what they really need to be able to see are other physicians that have made it that look like them. And you mentioned that there are only 5% of uh, doctors in this, in this uh, country that are African-American and the even more sad part of that. Well, only 2% of the doctors are African-American males. And you know, there's the other pandemic that's going on is that African, African African-American males have such a shortened uh, life expectancy um, that's lost to other violence within the community. And so it's, there's a there's a there's a lot of um, systemic issues that play a part in decreasing the African American trust in the healthcare system. They don't see people that look like them, so they automatically distrust um, that person. May not have their best interest, or they may not understand their their culture or. That pain is the same whether you're black or white, that black people don't have a higher pain tolerance, which is ridiculous, right? But um, that is a myth that was spread mm-hmm. several decades ago and has been perpetuated. Um, I think Hasina kind of reminded me with this project uh, because my age puts me in the third oldest age category, right? like to think that I'm a young person, but that makes me think about the fact that, well, how, how can I identify with this, with this younger cohort? And again, it's how, how, if, if I'm in this third oldest age group, um, I, ha- I must have these sort of preconceived messages that have been sort of um, that I've gathered over the years. And it's hard for this medical system that's so old and established to really look back at itself and say, well, these things we really need to change unless someone highlights it to you, because otherwise you think, well, that's normal, right? And so um, it's, it's the first step is talking about it as you're doing here. Um, and then the second step is we need to understand what interventions we can do and and how we can do it or in, install those uh, interventions uh, most quickly and in an effective manner, such that we can uh, again help rescue people, improve healthcare, improve the life of um, of, of everyone.
0: Doctor, I-, I wonder if you can just spend a little more time to, uh, uh, on sort of your your personal side of things. One of our earliest guests and and inspirations for the show and heroes uh, is this incredible marine biologist, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And uh, she is outspoken about uh, the ocean and climate and her experiences as a, as a Black woman in, in America. Um, and she wrote a piece for the Washington Post this summer in the middle of everything um, titled, I'm a Black Climate Expert. Racism derails our efforts to save the planet. And I just want to read a quick quote here because you talked about the black tax and how you see fewer black people and how, how it is, how it can be exhausting to have to kind of constantly, you know, qualify. Um, and she wrote, Tony Morrison said it best in a 1975 speech. The very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again, your reason for being as a Marine biologist and policy nerd. Building community around climate solution is my life's work, but I'm also a black person in the United States of America, and I work on one existential crisis, but these days I can't concentrate because of another. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit about, because you, you, um, you know, you mentioned the the other existential crisis, the other pandemic, which is, um, you know, Black life expectancy, especially for Black men, which was actually getting better pre-COVID, and now it's back to something like a six-year exactly. difference um, on average. And I know that's actually exasperated in some places. Um, so, if you don't mind, I wonder if you can gauge a little bit with that and your experiences and whether just seeing more Black doctors is is sort of our superficial thing that could that could make yeah, you some know, um,
3: I think having more African American physicians, it's um, on the surface, it may seem uh, superficial, but it's very important. Uh, now, uh, I, I just think that our youth are discouraged. They don't feel like there's anything that they can do that will make a change. That the 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 outcome is still going to going to be the same. And when you look at sort of what has um, spawned our recent sort of rioting and race matters. Um, the The relationship with policemen, especially for uh, black men, that you're not given the benefit. Uh, right, I, it shouldn't even be considered the benefit of the doubt. But you're already assumed to be guilty, and and you're going to be shot if you don't listen. And it just gets very frustrating that yes, we have to deal with this issue when we're trying to also advance other causes and And it's not getting better, and so for our young african American uh, children and other underrepresented minorities, when you're faced with a a social environment where you just seem like you can't get ahead and that everyone's trying to keep you down it, it gets very daunting and uh, and and discouraging and so what we need is for um, our young underrepresented minority children to feel encouraged. And um, there should be more programs that, uh, that are trying to get people into science and technology sort of classes and give them opportunities. There, there are lots of children out there that have the talent To do what, whatever task they're, um, they're challenged with, but they just don't have the opportunity to demonstrate their talent. They're they're automatically presumed that they're not going to be able to do it, or they're in an environment uh, where, um, their schools don't have the resources in order to allow them to do those things. And so it, it is kind of right now, it's this never ending cycle that, um, people can't get ahead. But if we have more Mm -hmm. African American, physicians and underrepresented physicians, then children can see that it is possible. I look at um, when our vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, actually uh, was elected, right? That everyone sort of erupted, sure, I, I yeah. think, um, and especially for underrepresented minorities. But I think uh, most of our country also saw uh, saw the benefit and the advantage of this for women as well as race. Um, and so it, it just People didn't even dream of being in that position before. And now that they see that someone's done it, then it can happen.
0: Well, I appreciate your perspective on that. Thank you.
3: Wow. Dr. Meridia,
1: c- coming back to, to the, the, those fundamental health issues that uh, can lead to heart disease, many of which can be uh, inherited. When, when we did some research, we saw a, a statistic that said that 22% of organ recipients are, are black. Meanwhile, only thirteen percent of the population is black. Uh, if black people, in particular, and and mostly black young people, uh, as we discussed, are are facing these hurdles on organ transplants, that means about a quarter of organ recipients are are at risk for much worse outcomes. When you've both mentioned that the outcomes should be, you know, pretty good, do you do you feel like your recent work has received as much attention as it should? Uh, and, and you know and what are the next steps for both of you?
2: I think that's a it's a great question. I think I think being able to be on this podcast has been has been a great way um, to showcase and educate a wider audience about our work and I think we've been very humbled and appreciative of the attention that it has received um, and continue to hope that it'll spur additional research projects that can get to the crux of why this has been happening now that we've sort of, move yeah. the needle on figuring out where this disparity, disparity is. I think concrete things that um, we're hoping moving forward can be done is having trials and having studies that are focused specifically with this high-risk group to be able to look at the nuances. I think they're big data. I love being able to analyze and ask these questions with a large end value that gives us great results Um, and understanding of what's going on at the national level. But one of the disadvantages is we don't have sort of the nuanced specific clinical data that we need and the experiences that these individuals are going through. So I think the next step is being able to understand at a microscopic level the experiences that these young Black recipients are having. What are the barriers to their care? what What is their experience with our flawed healthcare system that we can rectify moving forward?
1: Are you? Are you? Are you both in? Are you going to be furthering this research, like you, yourselves? You all in?
2: I think we need a, a multiple, multidisciplinary group. Maybe yeah, more definitely more people.
1: <laughs> I think my. Can the two of you just make this happen? <laughs> I don't understand. I think my my personal
2: skill set is in epidemiology and looking at like big data and um, being able to identify these trends that have gone um, unnoticed. Yeah. And I think while I I I'm very attached to this project, as Dr. Push knows, yeah. I've been working on it for five years now um and i'd love wow. i like oh it's it's been like such a rewarding experience and i i definitely do want to push it forward and do other studies that can further um, reduce disparities identify disparities i think the clinical studies is a completely different skill set and we hope that like our colleagues can can help us in that in that direction as well
0: do you does it make you feel better or worse that everyone on twitter is an epidemiologist now does that do you feel like that <laughs> supportive of your <laughs> occupation
2: especially With with the COVID outbreak, it has definitely turned everyone into an epidemiologist. So helpful! I'm glad that there's interest and there's um, like a better appreciation for the importance of it. Um, So I I will take it in stride. But I think that there can be um, uh, misinterpretation of of data and studies, especially with these COVID vaccines and other studies.
3: Yeah, but well, we definitely need our epidemiologist uh, colleagues to help us with these uh, big data sets. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Hasina's being uh, very humble. She did mention working on this as um, for four or five years, but um, you know, she did this as a medical student, and it's very hard um, to. To have any free time when you're a medical student, (laughs) uh, but to take on a project as big as this and to get it um, to the stage where um, it's actually published. I mean, the reason why it took four to five years, there are lots of doubters who the first time uh, she submitted this said, no way, that can't be true. You need to go Mm -hmm. back and look at the numbers, get some updated numbers. Um, So, of course, Hasina went back and got (laughs) updated numbers. Guess what? It's still true. And now it's even more true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, Our our whole group, and we have a we have a great team that uh, that is part of this project, and we collaborate at Johns Hopkins. That's made of the epidemiologists, surgeons, clinicians. students, grad students, postdocs, um, the and we call it sort of the ERGOT lab, the Epidemi- epidemiology research um, group of organ transplantation. And this is a really big think tank with lots of minds that we think about these problems of disparities, whether it's um, socioeconomic, geographic, um, other healthcare disparities. And, and we look at these data sets to try to figure out is there a problem? What is the problem? And when does the problem happen? And, you know, this, this is a great study that um, Hasina was able to, to, um, to, to, to bring to fruition and that we've known for decades that African-Americans do worse in heart transplantation. Mm-hmm. We, we still don't know why, but at least what we got out of this study is that there's a one-year period that's very early mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. their care, the first year that we can try to focus our our research on. I mean, if you're thinking that people usually live for 20 years after a heart transplant, it's very hard to look at that whole 20-year period and try to say, okay, we're going to make a change here. But now we've given the clinicians and policymakers a a finite period where we can look at it. We can devote our resources to it. We can implement clinical studies and clinical trials to address these disparities, um, and try to um, design some policies that will that can help resolve these disparities. And, and resolving the disparity, it, you might some people may think, well, that's only going to affect the black people, but it af- actually affects the whole system. Heart transplantation as a whole will learn from um, from these new interventions and and new policies. Everyone will increase their survival it's probably applicable to other mm-hmm. organs um, and um, as a healthcare system will really benefit by by this research and investment of resources <sighs>
0: it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot to do <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah. you've again wow. you guys have been working on this for so long um, Dr. Meridia I mean five years it's, that's amazing I, and that's on top of all of your day to day work so Again, we can't ignore what, what has happened over the past 12 months, which again was, was basically, I, I like to think of it as a the world's worst pop quiz. You know, what, how prepared were we <laughs> for this for this moment in time? And the answer is not very well. Um, oh, and not, so not prepared. It's, it's 2021. We're coming off this just crushing blow to public health, right? But one that seems like it was inevitable considering... The systemic issues we have we have spent so long constructing these systems that we have designed. Um, um, if, if you were both uh, starting over, um, and, and I know you've just talked about this incredible think tank, and now I I want to be like on your text message thread with these people because it sounds so awesome. <laughs> um, I, I guess being being so fully aware, we, we've always, like you said, we've always known that Black people have have. Uh, their outcomes are not as good for heart transplants, right? But even being more specifically aware of all these other places where we've failed, um, I'm curious if you would change anything about your career directions, your research directions, um, or if it's opened your mind to other things that we need to tackle. And uh, looking outwards a little bit, where else specifically do you feel like public health needs help for the, for the people who are, are coming up or the people who are thinking of pivoting a little bit?
2: I, I can try to try to answer that. I think with my my uh, the timing that I did this study um, and I wanted to look at disparities and epidemiology research. Started on undergrad, I did a global health project. I traveled to Pakistan, um, Tanzania, and then I also worked on research on Samoa and obesity and disparities there. So I think that passion for disparity started back then influenced this project for sure. Is what inspired me to start it, and then I think my career path has uh, when in med, med school we explore all these different specialties and i don't i didn't end up doing surgery or cardiology i'm actually in a completely different direction um, dermatology which you might think like how does one end up doing something so different but i think even in dermatology i i have been able to apply this passion towards disparities there's so many disparities we don't uh, really understand in dermatology as well um, if you open a dermatology textbook all of the all of the Lesions that are seen are all on white skin. So it's definite. and if you look at like the infectious diseases section, then you'll you'll start to see black skin. And it's like such a huge racial bias in the way that even medical education is done for for this particular specialty. And I think it applies to other specialties as well. So being mindful of that, being, being cognizant when I go through my training for dermatology starting next uh, starting July, being aware that of differences in, in the way that skin lesions look on skin, uh, patients of color, different experiences that Black women have with their hair, just because the different treatments and the different styling of, of Black hair and how that can lead to alopecia is something that applies even in dermatology as well. So even though I have changed my, my trajectory, I think that this mindset of wanting to be able to make medicine inclusive, make sure that there's health, Equity um, and equality in healthcare still applies, even in this different direction I've pursued.
0: That's awesome, uh, and like you said, it, it, I mean, you can you can find areas that that need help or uh, have just a legacy of built-in biases uh, everywhere, really. So whether it's dermatology or cardiology, I mean, it feels yeah. like you could <laughs> exactly. close your eyes and uh, spin around and, and pick something where that that needs. Uh, excavation. Dr. Bush, any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, where you've looked around and gone, boy, we could really, uh, again, clearly everywhere, but anything that's become more aware to you recently?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think it's, um, like you said, it's it's really everywhere. We don't have to look far, um, just Day to day relations within the hospital, um, just with your colleagues that are that may say something that's insensitive and mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily correct. So I I think it's um, I'm, I'm very relieved by our our new sort of government transition. Mm-hmm. I think um, as a society things can uh, potentially get better. I think this um, current uh, presidential um, committee or um, you know, committees really more involved and in, or more interested in diversifying and to not um, separating sort of the masses into sort of pro and con and that we're all going to work mm-hmm. together and that's really how this all um how, how we can get better. We have to be willing to, um, and even if it's uncomfortable, we have to be able to look at ourselves and our systems and to identify any problems and then address those problems. And it may take some time to fix the problem, but if we never start working on it, we're never going to fix it. And, um, I agree every, every medical specialty will have disparities. I'm sure other, um, Other professions and uh, specialties outside of medicine have have these disparities, but again, the 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 resolution is universal. You have to identify the problem and then start addressing it.
0: That sounds very rational.
3: Too rational. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we
1: need some rationality after the four years. Um, Let's uh, let's let's get into our action steps. That's our that's our you know one of our main goals uh, uh, with this. with our newsletter and our podcast uh, action steps that our listeners can take to to support you too, and your mission um, with, with their voice and, and their dollar. So let's chat about that. Uh, and, and let's start with, uh, with their voice. What uh, would you say are some big actionable and specific questions that we should all be asking uh, of our representatives uh, in an effort to, to support your mission? Yeah, I
2: think that I love that we're, I love that you and your podcast with these concrete steps that we can do, regardless of what profession we are in. I think with local representatives, this our study was funded by the lab that Dr. Bush mentioned. The ERGOT lab has funding from the NIH, two different grants that helped uh, run the lab and the mentors that who taught me how to code and to do the analysis and mentored cool. us both with um, a- a- epidemiological approach. Um, and I think that it was very heartbreaking in the last administration when funding was cut from science. And I think as um, as constituents of our constituents asking our local representatives to be mindful of funding for science and being able to ensure that agencies like NIH CDC are adequately funded so that we can keep fueling these huge think tanks like Dr. Bush mentioned and, Having these groups that are able to look at uh, big data or do other research addressing disparities is critical. So I think when we when we're looking at what we're who we're voting for, being mindful of local representatives who are in support of of making sure that science is well funded, I think is one great one one big step. And then I know you have a lot of scientists uh, listening to the podcast as well. And I think a New England Journal of Medicine article just came out a couple of days ago, and the first step they said is actually. Documenting these disparities, uh, it's traditionally been discussed in editorials and commentaries, but we need concrete data, like our project has shown to, to document the disparities and how wide reaching they are with, with actual outcomes for black recipients is also another step to take.
3: Yeah, and I agree with uh, everything Hasina said. And um, I think, Quinn, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about um, sort of disparities uh, with underrepresented minorities in COVID. And so uh, because COVID is... The now, it's very fresh in all of our policy policymakers' minds to um, to approach them now and to say we want to get rid of these healthcare disparities. How is it that we are tolerating this? We, we even get reports of sort of the the rich people going to the the more <laughs> impoverished areas where the vaccine is available and taking those vaccines from the from the lower socioeconomic. Um, um, Which is further um, uh, accentuating the disparity. But I think because it's fresh in everyone's mind now that this is the time for everyone, majority and minority, to reach out to the policymakers and to say, let's make a change. Let's enact something now that can help to resolve these disparities.
0: Right, because that's the thing. Uh, the the virus right SARS-CoV-2 uh, which produced um, this this disease COVID to which we were all you know this was a novel virus we were we were all susceptible to it um, but at the same time there were large large demographics of people of which we have built um, generations and generations of of health disparities and wellness and lifestyle disparities uh, many of which are inherited and that can be either uh, medicinal or it could be socioeconomic. Right, um, from heart disease to to housing, that made COVID more dangerous um, for people who are not white, and and this is the moment to to look at those things and say these people didn't just die of COVID, right? They, they, these people didn't have right. to get it. We we have to deal with these systemic things, and we have to start from 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 the bottom up. We have to deal with like why is this this way? Why does this have to be this way? Why have we decided this? Um, so um, but like you said i'm i i look, i'm I'm excited about the the current direction certainly um and and i I hope they can i hope they listen, and I hope um they're ready to do a lot of this work. It seems like the folks that are assembling um are ready to do that um so all we can do is keep pushing and uh what about uh their dollar are there any specific uh besides you know donating to local campaigns state campaigns federal campaigns are there specific? organizations uh, that support work like the work you guys are doing um in lieu of of you know directly improving socioeconomic uh situations or access to heart transplant surgery hospitals are there groups that are working to improve these things um that people could uh either volunteer with or contribute to in some way
3: yeah definitely um you know uh, it was a great um a great month for for our publication to come out um, in February, which was African American History Month as well as American Heart Association uh, or Heart Failure Month as well. And so um, those two organizations. So the American Heart Association um, is a great organization that supports the uh, the betterment of um, of heart. Uh, cardiovascular outcomes, um, and it has actually made it one of their missions to decrease disparities amongst all of these um, heart and vascular uh, specialties. So I, I think that's one way. Uh, we also have talked about during this session um, the the uh, the few um, African American physicians that are there, especially uh, black men. There's a a, um, a black man in white coats. Of movement that's going on, as well as a documentary, but um, which is reaching out to, um, to the community and trying to instill in the community the, the sense of courage and, and encourage them that a career in medicine is achievable and possible. And um, I think supporting that movement would be great as well, because again, we need to really diversify medicine. And um, we're going to have to start at a young level um, to reach out to those um, to those young children and tell them that it is possible and show them the way, because once they're sidetracked into other um, other opportunities, um, if you will, at at such a young age, um, then they're lost. It's it's hard to come back and recover um, from um, taking a path that is not um, that is not conducive to a, a career in medicine.
0: I love that. That's exactly the specificity we're always looking for. When when folks are like, "Well, call your Congress people," I'm like, "No, no, no. I need phone numbers. I need a script. I, we're, we're just you know, <laughs> Thanks, our, our, our our community is awesome about taking action. Whether it's it's folks who are just activists marching in the street for the first time, or it's you know, again, policymakers, scientists, CEOs, investors, whoever it is, and uh, they're they're up for doing the hard work. But at the same time, we try to make it as specific and. And uh, easy for them to take as possible so that it will be impactful because the more people that actually do it, uh, the better chance we have of of fixing this place up. Um, So...
3: And I should also mention that our, our research is, can also be privately funded, um, our research lab, and um, looking at further investigating these disparities. And so um, we have um, our development office that can definitely speak with someone at Johns Hopkins if, if, um, if those are, are willing to, um, to hear about the other projects that we're doing and where we're going to go from here and how those resources could be further used to, to help us get to the answer. Awesome.
0: Absolutely. Brian, uh, tag that for yourself when you're uh,
1: ready to contribute. <laughs> Done deal. Um, thank all you.
0: Right, Brian, uh, Brian, bring <laughs> us home here if you could.
1: Oh my God, of course. We just have a, f- a few more questions. and we're, we're, We've kept you for long enough. Uh, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, uh, so we have, I think, Quinn, we've changed it from Lightning Round to now it's just...
0: It's fun, not a lightning round. Questions? They're just they're they're fun, quick questions. Yeah, fun I couldn't quick. come up with uh-huh. a better so name. So anyway, um, if you're ready. Doctors, <laughs> uh, for each of you, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful?
2: Oh, this is also a great deep question. You're welcome. Uh, fun, like <laughs> <quick>, fun, Fun, <effort. laughs> quick. <laughs> I I actually really resonated with the story that Dr. Bush mentioned in the beginning. I was uh, my father actually said the same exact thing that that was mentioned to Dr. Bush by his dad. Uh, both of my parents are were farmers in India. Uh, never had a chance to go to college. No one in the family has. So I've been the first to go to college. But even in high school, my dad was like, "You don't need to have a lot to help people." I think it's it's profound to be able to help people when you don't have. As much and that's just as impressive when you're when you're able to do that and he's definitely walked the walk um he he works at a restaurant along with his brothers and no matter how he's doing he's always looking out for people and I always find out from other people the things that he's done to help them um, so I I think that that was the moment where I was like wow I like he hasn't had the opportunity to go to college or have really any education formally, and yet he's been able to make like, such a huge impact in people's lives. Um, and so I think that's where where I started to realize like what a huge responsibility I have since I do have this privilege to go to college sure. here. Um, and then at Brown, I went to Brown for undergrad and a phenomenal place that changed my way of thinking and really empowered me to find the tools and specifically here, the epidemiological toolkit to no, to to empower me to make an impact um, in the scientific community.
0: That's special. That's great, and I look forward to visiting your father's <laughs> restaurant at some point.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> you're welcome to. We'd love to have uh, you if you're ever in Houston. Oh yeah,
3: we'll make it happen, <laughs> um, Dr. Bush. Yeah, I would say um, for me, it's um, in addition to sort of the childhood experiences, but um, the first time I did a lung transplant independently, and I. That sort of resonates. I definitely. I always remember the first person I did a lung transplant on, as well as the the first time I did a lung transplant in an adolescent. Um, And you know, it's it's rewarding because. One you know you 've given someone this you 've helped them get this gift of life it 's going to totally change their their life and their expectancy, but you don 't realize until you do it how much it affects them so even if it 's an older person um, then they have children and grandchildren that they were going through this in order to to um, to be able to see sort of their child 's graduation or something and then when you transplant someone that 's at a much younger age that they had their life interrupted by some organ failure. And they still had many goals that they wanted to achieve in their life. And by them having a successful transplant, they're now able to uh, go and and achieve those goals. So I've had uh, people after transplant go on to graduate from school, go on and get married. And then they invite us to come to uh, their wedding wow. because it was something that their parents thought they were never going to live long enough in order to even get married um, when with certain diseases. And so it's uh, it's not only it's its obviously uh, very self-gratifying, but it's very rewarding and appreciated by the patients themselves and for many of their generations to come that, uh, that you've touched. And and, that's, it, and and obviously transplantation, we, we can't um, be, we'd be remiss not to mention that transplantation only happens um, by a donor and a donor's family being gracious enough to allow at a, a time when they're grieving that someone had to die in order for a transplant to occur. And that is a truly amazing gift. And for me, just being part of this whole transplant experience where donors' lives, recipient lives, my life, my family life, it's all affected by that one special incident where everything comes together. And, and that's truly amazing and, and why I went into transplantation, this.
0: Well, that's wow. Very special. Thank you for sharing that. And and I, you know, like you said, the, 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 it's the second order effects. It's not just the person you're operating on in this moment and, and, you know, giving them this period of time. It's, it's the life events they get to take part in. It's the people who get to keep having them in their life. That is, uh, it's pretty special. That's awesome. Um, Also, everybody, you should, uh, organ donor, just check the box. It's, you won't even, it's so easy. Just check the box. By the time it comes up, you won't have to worry about no. it because you'll be your you're toast, and you'll know you have helped somebody. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's the easiest thing. Um, uh, doctors, uh, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six? I might let Doctor
3: Bush yeah. take this first. <laughs> okay, no problem. For for yeah, for you said in my work or in my life. But you know what? I think you can exp- expand, expand it yeah. however you right. need to. Yeah. You know, f- for me, um, my career has definitely been matured and advanced um, by um, our chief of surgery here, Robert Higgins, Dr. Higgins. He's the uh, the first African-American to chair a department at wow. uh, Johns Hopkins. And... Um, and he's a phenomenal surgeon. He's also transplant-based, but when he came to Hopkins about six years ago, it was his mission to diversify surgery at Hopkins, Mm -hmm. and he has really taken that um, to heart um, there, and it's not just racial diversification. We have lots of women um, that um, are obviously very well uh, qualified and technically gifted that are also uh, leaders in the department of the different divisions, and and it's and our our division or sorry our department is much better because of this so we have now fresh ideas coming in from all walks and all sort of representation within a department and and it's better and so I say that dr. Higgins philosophy has really uh, championed um, Me wanting to stay at Hopkins and to keep doing the great work, even when I feel like there's a black tax that um, (laughs) that I have to participate in all these things, Mm -hmm. because when you get to see the fruits of, of that effort, that other people are working with you, we're all working together and you get to see change. Then, then it's worth it. People get discouraged when they when they keep trying and they don't see change, and that's that's what we're really trying to address here. Let's show them change. Show young children that it's that it's possible to be whatever you want to be in life, and and we'll support you. And then it becomes a much easier task to to, to get to our end well, goal. What,
1: what a wild idea, right? The more uh, diverse the uh, g- governing body, the happier everybody is. It seems seems kooky.
0: Uh-huh. Seems crazy. Seems crazy. I don't know.
2: <laughs> Brian,
1: last two. Uh. Did we get um? Yeah, sorry. Did we? Did we get an answer from Doctor Meridia? Oh, I
2: can. I I I. Did can, we do that? Oh, we did. I'm it. a I'm monster. So, I'm, I'm
0: a monster. No, no. no.
2: We we switched <laughs> up the order on this one. But I know I you think... gotta stop doing it. Too. I can
0: only do so much.
2: <laughs> 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 um, I think that in the last six months, like taking the question very literally, I've been uh, in my first year of residency. So, first year being a doctor after graduating, it's been a lot. I've been doing research when yeah. I when I have the time. Again, in your um, quote, but unquote, I think free time. time, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I think that the last six months have really been about becoming a good doctor, knowing my style as a physician and the kind of impact that I want to make on patients. And I think because of that, um, my grandfather, who unfortunately, he passed away the same day this paper was published earlier this month. he was I was um, his primary fa- family contact uh, when he unfortunately had, had an accident right in the midst of COVID. Uh. Uh, and I was his primary family contact and got to see healthcare from the lens of the patient's family side. And it, there were a lot of great things that physicians did that I've been trying to emulate. Um, and then a lot of flaws in the healthcare system that I've seen through my grandfather, father's experience. Um, and I think because of him, I am definitely a better doctor now. I, I, uh, he, um, he didn't speak English, doesn't understand like any of the mainstream Indian languages either because we're from a village. And there were so many, because of COVID, um, a lot of issues with like visit, visitation policy, his accident was in April. um, And so at that time, there were no visitation policies. So I had to, uh, nobody could understand him. And I tried to advocate, but I wasn't able to be with him in the hospital because of the policy. And unfortunately, it didn't understand, it it took, there was quite a delay in understanding that he was declining Mm. within a matter of hours um, and ultimately ended up going to the O.R., you did three different surgeries, unfortunately, had complication after complication, and I think that it gave me a lens into some of the barriers that you face like with, with race for sure, but also with language barriers and other barriers that I hadn't really fully recognized. Now on the other side as the doctor, I'm very cognizant of making sure that I go the extra mile and, and understand all of these different disparities that patients' families face to to, redu- to prevent this from happening in the future.
1: Thanks so much for well, sharing our, our that.
0: condolences, th- and thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. Obviously, deeply personal, and and it, it it matters. Not every case is going to be a a grandfather from a village who doesn't speak uh, much less English or Spanish. Uh, or, but even like you said, the mainstream Indian languages. But you know, we talked for a few minutes about uh, you know how 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 historically black people aren't listened to about pain or whatever it might be. And this is the, the the literal definition of not being listened to because someone can't. And what do we have to do to consider those things? Like you said, that's uh, you know an extreme example, but it's your grandfather, and it's always someone's grandfather, and, and that matters. Um,
2: and like health literacy broadly as well. Just there's so much low health literacy, in, in a lot of communities, and I think that's important to take into consideration as physicians. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that.
1: Um, all right, Brian. All right, last last two uh, uh, or three. I, I don't know. Who knows? Um, it's, it's, we're almost <laughs> no, done. I swear I'm to God. Just kidding. Uh, for each of you, we, we, we love to to learn this because it is so important, uh, especially, my God, considering what the two of you do. Uh, what is your self-care? What What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? You need some some you time.
0: Hasina, you can't say research for all these answers. <laughs> You've got to say something else. It's enough.
2: I... <laughs> I I I think my loved ones will say the same, and that you do need to take a break yes. from um, this. Medicine can be a bubble at times. Um, everyone is uh, in a lot of fields, but in medicine, especially, very focused, very motivated, and uh, it's it can be a very stressful environment. And I think getting out of that bubble, I think it's. I have the resource of none of my family members are in medicine, and I think it's very grounding when I. I'm able to sh- spend time with them, spend time with like social media um, for for my family's restaurant. I think that's always cool. a grounding experience. Kind of helps me like connect with with life outside of medicine, and it's been um, helpful for for the restaurant for sure, but also helpful for me and um, and my self care and being able to de, de- decompress.
0: I love that you're also the social, yeah, social media kidding? manager for the restaurant. <laughs> this makes
1: me so this happy. Is incredible! You, <laughs> Brian can't even log <laughs> into, oh, our into our Twitter. Instagram. Please, one hundred percent. Did you say, um, Doctor, that your, your father's restaurant was in Houston, also?
2: In is Houston, it, yes, it's called Aga's August.
1: Restaurant. Is that how? Awesome. I mean, with the recent insanity. There is. There, you should give the address. One hundred percent going in the show notes. <laughs> oh, oh my God! Of course, <laughs> and I want the inst. I want to see the Instagram. I want to see your social media work. The whole thing. The whole
2: thing. I would love to. If you're ever in Houston, you have to let us know. It's it's very fun for us to introduce um, people from outside of Houston to our yeah. Oh, yeah. In a heartbeat. Oh, that's in a so heartbeat.
0: Cool. Once this whole little pandemic's <laughs> over, it's happening. Yeah. Uh Doctor Bush, what do you do when you're overwhelmed? What's uh what ice cream, what what's the story? <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, you know, it. I, I must admit COVID has been hard on me because uh, <laughs> one of the things my family and I love to do is travel. Mm. And um, and so it's, it's been really hard. And And we like to travel sort of getting on planes for a really long ah. time. <laughs> and I think the reason why that is, is because I usually i can't be reached on a plane every other part of my life wherever i go someone's still gonna call me the kids are like you're not even on call right right. But when i'm on the plane it's like just me my family we watch movies mm. we're eating and having fun and, and so yeah COVID has uh, i think we've only been able to travel uh, maybe twice now but um it it's it's really hard um but so when this is over and we can travel more, um, I think that's what we'll get back into. Otherwise, during the pandemic, I've really just been spending time with my family. My family so um so, um, or, sorry, my schedule is so unpredictable. I have uh, two young boys, seven and five year old, um, who are very active. I love to do things with them, and so trying to spend time with them whenever I can. They're so active in sports, uh, soccer, gymnastics. Mm. They're all oh. over the place. Um, so when I when I can make uh, their their events is is amazing. Um, otherwise, we're just playing in the backyard. So
0: I love that. I get it. My my, my yeah. boys are the exact same age. Uh, but I've also got Great. a girl shoved in between them. Um and I, I get it. The uh spending time with them is is has really been the biggest balm to this whole thing.
1: How how yeah. upset were you, Dr. Bush, when they started offering Wi-Fi access on planes?
3: Leave me alone! (laughs) Get me out of here! (laughs) My one last. Well, at (laughs) well at first because I I I think you had to pay Mm -hmm. usually, and then at first, uh, at least the airline I was on, um, the text messages didn't come through, so it didn't really matter. But now they figured out, yeah, (laughs) now text messages come free or whatever. (laughs) You can text or whatever. What do I have to do? It is getting getting ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. At least when we're flying to China, usually are going over some range where Wi-Fi all of a sudden drops off for whatever reason, even though they tell you it uh-huh. works the whole time.
1: I
0: just want but, to be uh, there. I want to just circle that area continually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can we just go in circles about this space, pilot. Love it. Uh, exactly. Um, uh, all right. I think this really is the last one now. Uh, what is a book uh, that you have read, each of you, um, this year that has... Uh, maybe opened your mind to a topic that you haven't considered before, or just or just change change your thinking in some way. We we have a really great list of recommendations from all of our guests, and we we put them all up, uh, uh, online, available for all of our our listeners.
3: You know, I, I don't get to read um, <laughs> non medical stuff. <laughs> Um, very often, <laughs> but uh, one of the books and actually the the movement that I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, Black Men in White Coats. Um, there's a book as well, and in this book, it shares um, the stories of different uh, black men going through their journey into medicine. Mm. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book is one kind of knowing that there are other black men out there that are like me and that have had varying sets of uh, challenges getting into medicine. But usually it's all kind of s- um, summarized into simply someone, there was a, uh, there's a challenge getting recognized and getting into sort of getting the education that you needed, um, being discouraged along the way, not being supported because people don't see you as that particular type of profession. And, uh, and then once you get into the profession, having to continue to work hard and it's sad that we, we, many of us have similar stories, uh, but it's, it's rewarding to know that so many other people have, um, have, uh, made it through this, uh, arduous process and that, um, that they, that we, we can make it and that, um, that once, once they make it, they, that, um, that they'll they'll be successful and it and again it's once they succeed then for the generations behind us seeing that um, it, it is possible we can come from different different backgrounds and make it and um, and so that's that's very rewarding.
0: Awesome, thank you for sharing that. That is that is man exemplary. H- how you have time for anything is beyond me. <laughs> that's awesome, uh, Asina.
2: I think one of the books that is very relevant to her work. And also that I think people in outside of medicine would really enjoy is, um, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm. It's actually, um, she was a patient. Henrietta Lacks was a patient at Hopkins. Um, many, many, I'm forgetting the exact year, but she had cervical cancer and cells were taken without her knowledge or her consent. And now these cells, they were found to be essentially immortal. They were able to replicate and a bunch of projects were able to be done with with her cells. And this was all without her knowledge, um, without any compensation to her family. And a ton of like modern medicine has emerged from it, including some of the research with the COVID vaccines as well. Uh, And I think it's, Uh, eye-opening in terms of like some of the injustice that has been done with Black patients um, at at well-known institutions like our own Hopkins. um, And being able to understand some of the reasons why there is a lot of um, distrust with the medical system is because of a lot of things like this, like Tuskegee trials that you mentioned as well. Um, I think it's a great read for people in and out of medicine.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it is a special one. I believe they made a, a movie with Oprah,
2: I think. They were trying, I think that was in, in the works. Uh, I did actually see her in person when she came to film, but I don't know that it was actually, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We'll definitely include the book. It's, it's pretty incredible, both, both just on the technical uh, scientific front, but then also, again, like you said, the, the lack of permission and, and, um, Mm -hmm. knowledge and any of that stuff and where it's gone is pretty unfathomable, but got to address it. Um, Mm -hmm. Guys, this has been incredible. Really, uh, incredible. can our listeners stalk you on the internet, follow you online? Is there somewhere, uh, Twitter, or where the project lives, something like that?
2: Definitely. Um, my handle is at h on Twitter.
3: Beautiful, Dr. Bush. And, yep, and I'm um, Errol Bush, MD.
2: Awesome,
0: awesome. Easy Probably peasy. Not too many people.
3: And um, because I'm in that third age demographic, I, I just. Oof. I just got on Twitter uh, two months ago, so uh, please follow me. I don't have many followers. (laughs) I'm working on it, though. Done deal. Well, look.
2: Honestly, same. Same even though I'm in the first category.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just eons between you two. Um, I did awesome. see Quinn
3: that you followed me today, so thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm just <laughs> I'm trying to help where I can. You know, it's the least thank I can you. do for an, for an old person like <laughs> yourself. Uh, guys, thank you so much uh, for your time today, for your candor, uh, for for the thought you've put into this, and obviously all of the work you've done. Not just this research, but on a day to day basis, uh, and has seen everything you're going to do. Clearly, Doctor Bush is nearing the end of his career uh, with yes. with his late stage. <laughs> Um, but thankfully, there's a future out there. Um, we'll try to keep Brian out of your way where we can. Um, and we look artist. forward to visiting Houston and hitting up the restaurant. Yeah, oh, my God. Definitely. So excited. If we oh, get yeah, nothing wait, else when, out of this when conversation. You, uh,
1: when we're, we'll get in touch with you after this for some stuff. Please please give us the the name of it and the address, like uh, Errol said, and all that stuff so we know, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, <laughs> for sure for sure awesome uh, well thank you guys thank so you much thank you so much for having us this was a lot of fun yeah, absolutely
0: thank you, very much. Thank you for putting up with us <laughs> thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in